deflection from Torrey Hunter. It's been a game of missed opportunities, yet still in front for the Tigers. The count's 0 and 2 on Victorino. That's hit well into the corner. It is gone. A grand slam. You know, Don, if there's one thing I've ever said about that Shane Victorino, he is certainly a force, force of nature. Of nature. Yep. Yeah. Uh, no, but actually, I have to thank you for something. What's that? I have to thank you for being sick last week. You saved me from the public embarrassment of having to play the Brady to Kemble Tomkins <laughs> at the top of our show. Uh, that guy, it's not a popular opinion here in Buffalo, but if he's not the best ever, he's on a really, really short list. I mean, he does it with nobody. Those guys were dropping so many balls that game, too. A lot of people come up to, came up to me in the last week or two and said, you know, were you mad? And, of course, I was mad. And it, sure, because they had it. That hurt. You know, like, I haven't had a gut punch loss like that probably since the San Francisco playoff game. Right. Uh, and that hurt worse, obviously, because that's a playoff game, and they might have won the Super Bowl that year if that game doesn't happen. But sometimes you get braided. Yep, And you know what? Honestly, for some reason, that came out of the left field to a lot of people. It didn't to me. I seen it happening. Somehow, I just saw it. I, I saw it with them. They blew it so many times, and I'm like, you just can't keep bringing this guy on the field. No, right. And the last time, he had over a minute. Yep. And the, when the first pass went to midfield, I said, well, he's going to get at least two shots into the end zone. But um, anyway... <laughs> Thank God the Saints had a bye because I needed a break. Yeah, that that takes so it took so much out of me. I, yeah, the I, Bills have something like three teams in a row coming off byes, so that bodes well for them probably. And then you, there's teams like the Seahawks who are going to get the Rams this week without Bradford, yeah. then the Bucks the following week without well, they're a disaster. Doug anyway. Martin and a disaster, right? And then they might not win a game. I this think year. it's Atlanta the next week without Julio Jones, something like that. They have a really nice. Yeah, Tampa Bay is bad, maybe even potentially worse than Jacksonville. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I'm not positive which team is worse, but I don't think it's a given that. Do they play? Either one is worse. No, they don't play. That's a bummer. Yeah, that would be big. How about that Monday <laughs> night football game last night? That was boring. Is that – we're going to talk a lot about the greatest of all time later with a new segment. We'll talk more about that later. But there's a chance that might have been the worst Monday night football game of all time. Yeah, what's what's with Adrian, you think? Just team not good enough for Well, one him? thing is nine carries and a half isn't yeah, enough. Yeah, that's silly. You know, that you're not even giving him a chance. It's like they got a new toy and they wanted to use it in Freeman. And Freeman I don't know if his the book on him is accuracy issues, but last night he overthrew everybody. And I think I saw like it's funny how perceptional change. The first couple of drives, it's like, wow, his adrenaline must be going. He's really pumped. <laughs> right. the, ball, the ball's sailing on him a bit. He's gonna settle in. Then it's halftime, it's just kind of starting to shift, and by the end of the game, it's like, this is the worst accuracy performance in the history of the league yeah, tonight. I watched early on just because I turned it on, because we weren't doing anything else at home, and then I flipped it on again later, thinking, well, maybe both of these teams got into a rhythm, and nope. No. Hakeem Nix doesn't seem right either, like for a guy that's people are 
He's a free about, agent, right? Well, yeah. He's going to be so, a free agent. So there's a lot of trade rumors because of how bad the Giants have been. Just there's a lot of catchable balls there that he was missing. Just a sloppy, sloppy game. Of all the guys that are rumored to be traded, when I think about the Saints and maybe something they could do, I would be really intrigued with Josh Gordon. Sure. Yeah. Why not? You know what I mean? He could maybe be a potential game changer because for as good as the team has been this year, the wide receivers have not been great. No, a not lot at all. of those not completions have been to Sproles and to Graham, and then to you know, there ha- Colston hasn't had his best year by no, a long shot. No. You know what I mean, and especially that New England game. Is Graham going to play this week? Is there a risk to miss him? I I don't know because the team hasn't had to put out an official injury report yet, and they haven't really been that vocal about it other than whatever tests they took were negative. Hmm. But anyway, welcome to (laughs) uh, Season 3, Episode 30 of the Sportscasters, and we don't have very many episodes left here in Season 3. Before we know it, we'll be at Christmas break and coming back for Season 4. But we have a great show for you today. I felt bad we missed you last week, so we booked something a little bit extra special, including our first interview, which I want to thank the good folks at ESPN for setting this up for us, is with Trey Wingo uh, from ESPN. And I kind of talked to Trey about this, and it'll be interesting to hear. He's kind of in that position where he is kind of praised on the internet because he's not Berman. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? He's the guy that when Berman isn't there, is. Sure. For example, the first two days of the draft is headed by Berman, right? Right. But that third day is headed by Wingo, and all you hear about that third day is how great Wingo is because he's not Berman. You know, and then when Berman's father passed away and Wingo filled in there, oh, on Monday Night Football is the greatest show of all time now because Berman's not there. You know, so it's an interesting spot for him to be in where in this world of snarkiness on the internet – he kind of misses a lot of that because he's the other guy. Sure. Right, so, not not to kiss ass because we know they listen when their guys are on, but Berman is like a cartoon character. So I think you either love him or you hate him. And, uh, yeah, it's weird they, they choose to have him do the draft. I tend to watch the NFL guys a little bit because it's a little bit less of a – And we talked to, to Wingo about that kind of thing. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't back off, and I hope I didn't push it too hard, but I wanted to get his opinion about – how he felt about his position as kind of being the not Berman guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it'll be interesting, I think, for you guys to hear that. And then also, I was thinking about it one day listening to Stern. Uh, so I, everyone knows I'm a big Stern fan. And one thing that they have on his networks on Sirius is the uh, Super Fan Roundtable, where people who are famous that are big fans of the show will congregate to talk about the show. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be really cool if our podcast became the place where Pearl Jam super fans came to talk about Pearl Jam, that'd be cool. So today, we know at least one. Right? Yeah. So today we have AJ Delirio, the former editor at Deadspin, who then went on to be the editor at Gawker, and is now working in a similar capacity for Spin Media, which is the online version of Spin Magazine and Vibe Magazine and all the other okay. properties that is owned by that group. He is a huge Pearl Jam fan who I guess could be considered, especially on our podcast, which just focuses on people who cover sports, uh, a Pearl Jam super fan. So we're going to have him on to talk about everything that went on in his career, of course. But then we're going to also talk about the new Pearl Jam CD. And we're going to also talk about the Pearl Jam tour that's going on and some of the other things revolving around the world of Pearl Jam. And and hopefully uh, we're going to do that some more. Tim Booth, who is a highly respected writer for the AP, 
who covers mostly the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Seahawks, the Mariners, uh, the MLS, which is huge in that area of the country. Right. Uh, he is another Pearl Jam super fan who I think is going to be on at some point. Yeah, maybe we could almost get like a Pearl Jam side the Seahawks. project going for that. Like this is cool. Like AJ, like you said, he's a big name. He's had held some big positions, but I mean, maybe it'd be cool to get a guy on like uh, the Pittsburgh pitcher. Yeah, Jason Grilly. Just tell he would him, be look, a super fan. We're going to talk about Pearl Jam now. Dennis Rodman. I doubt he's coming on, but just well, another right, example, right. you know, of someone who. I think I, mean, I don't know. Maybe I mean a guy like Grilly and Rodman. People would listen to talk about anything. I imagine, but uh, yeah, that'd be sweet. If you know of any Pearl Jam super fans that you think would be of interest, shoot us an email: the Sportscasters at gmail dot com. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and our website where you can find this week's show, last week's show with Mike Tanier from Sports on Earth. It's www.sports-casters.com. We got a lot to do today. Trey Wingo. AJ Delirio. We're also going to finish with one last thing. We have a new segment called The Greatest of All Time, and we'll get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So I was thinking in our week off about ways to improve the show, things we can do to make it better. And Don and I were talking about this before we started. There's one mistake that we maybe may have been making. Yeah, this of, almost feels like a no-brainer. Kind of happened by accident. Last year when we had the two shows, in this first spot of three things, on one of the shows we would look back at the previous NFL week. Right. On the other show we would look ahead, and it worked out perfectly. For whatever reason, we got and got in the groove of just looking back on the show. And when I really thought about it, I thought maybe we're doing everyone a disservice by looking back because probably by the time you listen to this, right. you don't care about what happened last week anymore. It's been covered. It's been done. You've moved on. So this week, we're going to try to look ahead as opposed to looking back. We're going to see how that goes. And let us know. Any feedback is always appreciated. Again, sure. sportscasters at gmail.com or at sports underscore casters on Twitter. Right. And if we decide this is the way we're going to go going forward, which I think it will be, because I know as a sports fan, if the Bills lose or even if my fantasy teams lose, I don't even want to look at football for a day. And then I'll come back to it and start tweaking my lineups or thinking about the Bills next matchup, like on Wednesday or Tuesday night or something after all the games have been decided. So... Yeah, we probably screwed that up. Probably. So and we're going to crack that wrong here today. Right. And if anybody wants to have us get an opinion on something that happened in the week previous, just shoot us an email or whatever. We'll go over whatever. And stuff is going to come up in talking about the games ahead that happened anyway. Sure. Right? Well, like, let's just get started right here with the Rams. Who did the Rams play this week? This week coming forward? Yeah, like, let's get started right away. So we'll look ahead to the Seahawks. Okay. That's so the, the Monday night game. Seahawks is, is uh, Monday night. ESPN, tough couple weeks for them probably. Oh, boy, yeah. And the Rams are going to have to play this game as they're going to play the rest of the year without Sam Bradford. And they're a team that, even though they didn't start great, they were still very much in it. They were Three still and a, four. Yeah, yeah, they were still a team that was – their season could go either way, and you got to think with Colin Clemens now, it's going to go that other way. And they're a team that is going to have two first-round picks. They're going to have their own, and they're going to have the Redskins' first-round pick, which is going to be – uh, the last of that RG3 trade. And I guess my question is, does Sam, do they have to think about going a different direction than Sam Bradford now? 
Boy, uh, if you're asking me... If they have the fifth pick in the draft, let's say, and someone like Taj Boyd from Clemson, is this, let's say he's a second-rated quarterback, and he's still there, does that need to be their pick? It almost feels like they have to, but on the other hand, I don't know. Is Maybe this will be his excuse forever, or excuse apologist for Bradford, Bradford make forever. Which I'll admit being one. Who does he have around him? Like, what has this team done right? They've done nothing right. Brian Quick. Their defense is okay, I guess. The Brian Quick pick that they made with the first pick Terrible. in the second round hasn't panned out. Nope. Uh, the Austin pick this year, it seems like the right pick, and you see his potential, but they haven't figured out how to use him yet. He's been maybe the most underused player in the NFL this year. Right. He hasn't. He didn't come in and become Percy Harvin. Right. And That's looks for like- sure. So I don't know... I don't know that ever anyone can just automatically do that because they're a freakish athlete. If you looked at the Minnesota game last night, Monday night, yes, last night, uh, against the Giants, it almost felt like they were trying to use him the way they used Harvin. They were giving Cordell him the ball. Patterson. Cordell Patterson, yeah. right. Uh, it just didn't work. And the Giants aren't exactly a world beater on defense. So, yeah, teams need to game plan for him, but Harvin might just be really, really good too. It's not just you get a small athletic guy and you can make that work. You know, the Seahawks are rolling right along, 6-1, and one, tied with the Saints at the top. And really, I think the NFC, in a lot of ways, is going to be really come down to that Monday night game between the Saints and the Seahawks. The winner of that game is going to... The other team's going to lose an NFC game. The other team's going to lose a head-to-head matchup. That could really be a huge game in deciding who hosts the NFC playoffs. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm looking at the whole schedule here kind of as a whole, and we're going to hit probably every game for at least a second or two, but... What a terrible week for competition. Like, well, there's a lot of buys this week. I think there's eight teams on a buy this week. I think the best, like the premier matchup this week is probably the Sunday 4 o'clock game between the Jets and Bengals. Six teams on a buy. Okay. Yeah, yeah but the Jets and Bengals play this week, uh, 4 o'clock on Sunday. And... Are the Jets the biggest team in the league, surprise-wise? Did anyone have them 4-3 and three at this point? Surprise in a positive? Um, the Chiefs probably no one had it 7-0. and oh. But oh sure, people thought they'd be good. You know, people what? thought the Jets would be historically bad. I'm a Jets hater, and I will say that they're better than I expected. Their defense is still really, really good, and Geno Smith has been better than people thought. He's been the typical rookie quarterback because he has his good days, has his bad days. That said, they've been bailed out by two 15-yard penalties in the last play of games. True, uh, Tampa Bay and and the they're game. and it's not like plays that shifted what. Like, they didn't have any effect on the play itself. The one was a total bonehead play with a guy hitting him way late on the to- That line. one is totally legit, though. That one no, it's is going to call. call 100 No, no, no. Out of I'm not saying right. that the calls aren't right. I'm just saying it's not like they did something that made the other team make a mistake type thing. That was just a total bonehead. Uh, that's the Bills' Aaron Williams hitting the guy four yards into the out of the sideline when he's in the air. And the other game is just this past week, which... I'm reading an ESPN thing now that says the Jets tipped them off, tipped off the refs that they yeah, were doing. That. I heard that because that the Saints the missed week, a field right? goal. The oh, Saints okay. missed a field goal in the game before against New England, where they did the exact same thing, wasn't called. The, that Saints game, by the way, which this is going to sound like sour grapes, obviously, because my team lost it. But the Patriots got a million and one calls in that game. There was the uh, uh, the Saints had a drive stall on a fourth down where the Patriots player clearly came into the neutral zone. And our guy got called for the false start. I think I did see that, yeah. You know, there was that. Then there was on the 
Brady play. There's the still frame of the clear holding on the left tackle oh. and the guy coming along. And then now, obviously, in a field goal, the Saints missed this penalty that apparently has to be called uh, because there's a point of emphasis in the league. And I don't mind the call if there is some sort of danger involved in it, but it, does every seems silly. 15 yards yeah, for that? Yeah, it seems silly. Uh, automatic first down. I'll, yeah, that's that's bad. But yeah, Jets-Bengals probably the premier matchup this week. I don't think the Bengals are as good as they're. I, I, I'm going to never probably believe in either of these two teams. I've seen the Bengals. Uh, Thursday night is probably a night to watch the World Series. <laughs> yeah, this is With, like that's uh, what I'm saying. This is not a week for the Panthers games. and the Buccaneers. You probably can't get get your get yourself in on that World Series matchup. In the Thursday night games, people have already complained about. Lions and Cowboys in general isn't good. Lions and Cowboys is interesting to okay, me. Okay, yeah, that's that's a good game. You that's know, maybe the premier matchup this week. Four and three and four and three. Probably either team could go either way at this point. Sure. It's nice to be the Cowboys in the sense that pro- you're probably winning that division is if you can win ten games. Yeah, you might not even have to do that. You probably don't even unless, need to do unless that. the Eagles get hot. Uh, the Eagles are one of the um, one of the teams that we'll have to check out this week as they play the Giants, who they need to beat. Yes. Right? I mean, if the Eagles want to take a step towards making the playoffs, they're going to have to beat the Giants at home. Sure. Patriots-Dolphins, I guess, is an interesting game. The Dolphins are 3-3, three and three, um, having had their bye already. So I guess a win here. I just don't think the Dolphins are that good. The line on the Bills-Dolphins game last week was something like nine points, and that was ridiculous to me as soon as I heard it. And the Bills obviously won the game, so they covered. Uh, I don't think the Dolphins are as as good as even as their three and three record. Do you think the Jaguars who play at home against the 49ers or the Buccaneers who play at home against the Panthers get their first win this week? No. Do you think the chiefs who play at home against the Browns get their first loss this week? No, but I think that game's close closer. I mean, I don't have the line in front of me. I'm on NFL network. ESPN actually has the lines, but uh, it's chiefs by nine. Yeah. I bet it's closer than that. I bet you, I bet you the Browns cover. And then the Sunday night football game, if you didn't get enough no, of the Vikings terrible. last terrible. night, you get them at home against the Packers. Why do they need a Sunday night game? Because they made the playoffs in a historically good Peterson year? Like, who is clamoring for more Interesting thing about Christian Ponder. that historically great Peterson year, by the way, which I think people are ready to jump off his bandwagon this year, which is okay. But right. he was ahead, he's ahead of he – he had more yards at this point last year than he does. He has more Flipping. yards this year really? than he did last year at this point. Interesting. So. Yeah, and you got to figure Freeman's better than Ponder. I would hope. I mean, he was terribly inaccurate. He's but making $10 million to play this year. Is he really? $7 million from the Buccaneers and $3 million from the uh, Vikings. And one last thing about Sam Bradford, which we didn't mention when we were talking about the Rams maybe making a decision on him. Remember, he's the last first overall pick before the rule changes. So they have a lot of... Oh, a lot of money in him. Tied up in him. $50 million guaranteed and wow. a huge cap hit. So that might be a reason for them to bring him back. But I think if there's nothing else you want to say, I'm ready to move on to the second thing. Yeah, I mean. Oh, there's one last thing we have to oh, talk about. Oh, Bill's Saints? It's Bill's and Saints week. I'm no fan of it. I got to tell you that much. I don't like it. Really? I hate it. I hate it because for a lot of reasons. Okay, so since I've been a Saints fan since 1987. And in all that time. The Saints and the Bills have only played four times so far. They played in 1989 in Buffalo. The Saints won a famous game right, that John Forcade started in a blizzard here in Buffalo. I think it was my first Bills game ever. They played in 1992, which was, at that point, the Saints' best season, and the Bills won in the Superdome with a great second half. 
Oh, that was the one that after the game, Jim Kelly kind of famously said, all right, who have you picked us to win this game? Right. And he's like, put your hands on your all liars or something right. like that. So that was that one. Then they didn't play again until opening day of the 2001 season. And that was a big, was uh, big it was Ricky. The, it was the uh, first game in the Greg Williams era <laughs> in Buffalo. Uh, Sammy Knight had three interceptions. Ricky Williams had a second half touchdown. Yeah, I remember. I remember they kind of held Ricky in check. Seven for, to seven to six Bills at the half. Saints win the game. I think twenty to seven. Or yeah, and I think like by that. the end of it, Ricky Williams had a, had a big day too. Uh, and then they played in the Katrina season, where the Saints weren't in the Superdome. They were in San Antonio. That game was played in San Antonio. It was one of the Saints' three wins in the Katrina year. And then they played in the Saints Super Bowl season in Buffalo. Saints sort of won a somewhat uneventful, kind of boring yeah. road-type game that is probably most known for the end of Terrell Owens' consecutive catch streak. Okay. If that's a thing. Sure. I know it was long at the time. I don't remember right, how right. long. But I'm just no fan of it because, you know what, pretty much as long as I can remember now, certainly from the certainly in the 2001 game, and even in the Katrina year, because it was so early in the season, there was no kind of no one realized the Saints are going to be as bad as they end up being. And definitely in the Super Bowl season, and surely this year, the Saints are supposed to win. Right. So if they don't win, I have to hear from everyone <laughs> and their brother about right. how the okay, Bills I see what you embarrassed mean. the Saints and ha ha ha. And if they do win. Everyone's just going to say... They're supposed to win. They're supposed to win. Right. You, you guys have Super Bowl aspirations, and we we have Thad Lewis. Yeah, as a Saints fan, this is a no-win. It's a miserable week for me, and I've kind of said this. I'm softening in the sense that I don't like rooting against a team that the people that I care and love about the most like. And It's no and, fun for me to root against the Bills in any way. And the Bills... Uh, this is the only week this year I'm going to do it. They're, they're getting against the Bills. They're getting likable. Too. I mean, there's been some Bills teams that uh, had some players that had a lot of were kind of brash for a team that did nothing in the entire time they were here. This is a pretty likable team. They're young. Uh, they're easy to root for. Their stars like Fred Jackson are extremely likable. Sure, uh, but there's I have no I'm to the point in my life I have no pleasure rooting against a team, one that is in the city that I love, that is loved by the people that I love. This is the only week this year that I'm going to do it. And I'm only going to do it because I love my team more, obviously. And I'll just be happy when it's over. And uh, that said, and we should probably move on to something yeah. else. Uh, I just don't see a way the Bills win this game. As good as their defense has been, they've been pretty good. I, that's their strength against the Saints' strength. And then I think the Saints' D is good enough to stop the Bills' offense, which hasn't been a strength. It'll be interesting if Thad Lewis can move the offense in the Superdome, which... Plenty of quarterbacks much better than him haven't been able to do. I mean, they're going to have to put up, what, 30 to win this game? And that that's the hardest part I see here. Maybe maybe they give Breeze more trouble than the Bills in the past would have, but I, I just don't see any. It's like the worst possible matchup, I think, for the Bills. Well, I'll be glad when it's over. Okay. <laughs> All right, second thing today. The World Series starts tomorrow night uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, a repeat of the 2004 World Series, the Boston Red Sox versus the St. Louis Cardinals. Both teams had relative, well, I'll say this, the Cardinals probably had a pretty easy NLCS and the Red Sox got a lot of mistakes 
from the Tigers, including two disastrous uh, Grand Slam pitches by the bullpen uh, to help them propel them to the World Series. But this is a question I always ask you on this show, Don, because I know that will you watch this? Does Red Sox Cardinals World Series bring you to the TV or is it like does it need to get to game six and seven to get you there? Now, it's tough about this year is and I don't know if we've talked about this. I probably have, but I was marathoning Breaking Bad. Uh, yep, we have talked about that. I loved it. It's great, whatever. I'm not saying anything anyone else doesn't know, but I, for that reason, I haven't watched any of the baseball so far. You haven't really watched anything but that. No, I haven't watched month, anything. Right? My DVR is filled up with other shows I like, like Archer and The League and that type of thing, but uh, I haven't watched anything. So I haven't watched any yet. I don't know that I'll seek it out because now the problem is I have a DVR full of stuff. <laughs> but it's about as good as a matchup as you can get, right? I mean, what? I mean, there's no New York teams there, I suppose. It's the number one seed from each conference, right? Or league. So the number one team in the American League versus the number one team in the National League. The Red Sox are probably the second most popular franchise in baseball. And the Cardinals the, are the second most successful. They're the number one seeds, and they're probably the best teams, too. Yeah, I mean, would, that, yeah. So, I mean, it's as good as it gets. If there is a game six, a game seven, or any elimination game, I guess, I would guess that I do watch some of it, If definitely the end of it, at least. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, someone asked me yesterday who I think is going to win, and I, I think I, I favor the Red Sox a little bit. Just seems like they're it's their year. A lot's going right for them. They're a scrappy team. You know they gr- they can grind it out if they need to. For as scrappy as a team with a hundred and fifty million dollar payroll can be, they're it. Um, and uh, I think I give them an edge. I will assume that they'll win it in six games, but wouldn't be surprised if the Cardinals win it. And that Wakia, the guy that the Cardinals got for in their con- uh, they got a first round pick as for losing Pujols oh, in yeah. free agency, and that's the guy. He's been unbelievable in the playoffs. So that worked out for them. Like it you did said, work out. The, maybe the best best organization in baseball. And if you look way back in our archives, Ben Ryder wrote a, a piece this year about them, a cover story for SI, and we had him on that week, and he talked about it. Some interesting stuff there if you want to look back. Okay, my third thing this week, uh, I'll piggyback off what I said about baseball. It's not that I'm a baseball hater. It's just I think growing up in Buffalo, there's I don't have a team – my parents didn't have a team, so it's kind of you'd have to kind of seek it out yourself. So I'm going to blame where my location for not having more interest in baseball. I'm also going to question my location for my third thing this week is more of an opinion, kind of like our last thing. But uh, I don't know how this is in every town or if it's more blue collar towns like Buffalo, Pittsburgh, more middle class towns. But man, do people look to hate on high, high priced free agents? Really, really quickly. And uh, who I'm talking about is Mario Williams, who had a really nice statistical year last year with something like 10.5 sacks. But he was beat up for not coming back effectively enough from injury, not making a big enough difference, whatever. Anything he could be beat up over last year was beat up over basically because he was paid a lot of money. And I think people don't like that here. Sabres have always kind of gotten that type of abuse as soon as they sign big contracts. Mario Williams is arguably... I read an article today that advanced stats suggest he could be the MVP, the defensive MVP of the league right now. Yeah, he's had an awesome season. He's got 10 sacks through seven games. 
He's on pace for 20-something. And even if that levels out, these are game-changing sacks. These aren't a lot of the uh, Especially last week. Aaron Schobel sacks, who I felt was kind of a... If a running back can be a compiler, I think Aaron Schobel was kind of a compiler. Like, he was never like... I don't think teams game plan for Aaron Schobel. Well, they're going to have to for Mario Williams this year. And that's great, because I think I bought into the negativity behind him just because maybe the same mentality. I'm from Buffalo. He gets paid a lot. I have to not like him because he doesn't look like he's work hard, working hard enough or whatever. But he's really good, and I'm glad, and the defense looks really good this year. And uh, it's cool to see the sea change here in Buffalo as everyone really backing off the Mario Williams hate. Uh, last thing for three things today is just something we've been following for a long time, mostly with Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated when he comes on. Uh, the Miami Hurricanes were the latest in a long string of college football program scandals, and it was resolved today with the NCAA basically uh, bowing to the unprecedented self-imposed sanctions that the Hurricanes put on themselves, and they'll escape any additional penalties from the NCAA, which means basically that they're not going to miss out on any bowl appearances, which is really good for this year's team, which is number 7 in the country and 6-0. and uh, they'll be able to participate in the postseason next year, which will be the first year of the semifinal final situation, the first kind of college football playoffs. Uh, what they're going to lose instead is three scholarships annually over the next three years, and the entire athletic program has been pa- placed on three years probation. Uh, the basketball program will lose three scholarships as well. So all kinds of things and basically whatever, <laughs> right? Okay. I don't know if it's too harsh. I don't know if it's harsh enough. All I know, again, is it's just another in a long series of they were the team that got caught this time. Right. And I don't care what team you root for. Just know it might be your team next time. The only thing they didn't punish, like you said, is they didn't lose any. No postseason. No postseason. I think that's the only thing you can effectively punish a school with because kids care about that you want to play in a bowl game if you're playing there maybe cost ohio state a national championship last year maybe right i mean they went undefeated and did get a chance to even be eligible for that game sure so and uh and you got retroactively taking bowl games is stupid does anybody care that like a national championship is taken away no after the fact after the fact too late right so that's they didn't do the only thing that would really probably hurt them so i'm guessing other schools aren't gonna all Straighten up and fly right because of that. (laughs) All right. We are going to take a break and come back with Trey Wingo from ESPN. Our next guest grew up in Connecticut and is a graduate of Baylor University. He has been at ESPN for 17 years. He's making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Trey Wingo. How are you doing today, Mr. Wingo? Wow, I love the fanfare. I didn't know you guys had music. Oh, this yeah. Is getting, we, this is getting fancy. We butter our guests up with their fight songs. You know, it's on, on, Only then to cut them down, I'm sure. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. The, uh, the internet can be a really snarky place, but the Sportscasters is one one place we try to be snark-free if possible. Well, there you go. Listen, then you're carving your own niche. That's, that's the most unique thing about this podcast already. That's right. Although, you know, it's funny I say that because I did have a bit, of a bit of a meltdown last week on the podcast when discussing the Braves' bullpen management in uh, Game 4 of the uh, NLDS. 
which was uh, not good. <laughs> well, then it was sort of like the Braves bullpen, so it, it all worked together. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. Really excited to have you on. I uh, really appreciate it. And I guess uh, since we got you started uh, with, uh, with the Baylor fight song, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear uh, what you think about Baylor athletics and, and kind of the unbelievable resurgence that they've made since you can almost trace it from the terrible tragedy that the basketball program had almost 10 years ago now. It just seems like Baylor athletics, is, especially in the Big 12, moved from, from a punchline to a serious contender in several sports, not just football, women's uh, basketball, and men's basketball. It's just really an incredible uh, incredible rise, and, and is this something that you're still really close with? Are you, I, don't, I mean, I'm assuming that you're a big Baylor sports fan, but that's not necessarily has to be true. Well, look, it is it is an amazing turnaround. I mean, I, I was working on SportsCenter when the whole Dave Bliss fiasco went down, and you know, I remember talking to Dave a couple of times, and he was like, "Hey, you got to just uh, help me get through this. We're going to turn things around." And this is when they still hadn't found the body of one of the players, and I'm like, "There's nothing to turn around. Your your season's over. Your career's over. It's never going to happen." So from it to go from that to where they are now is really remarkable. And you're right, it, it is across the board. The men's basketball program is nationally ranked. The football team, which was moribund for so many years, uh, is actually great right now. Now, they were, they were great when I was there back in the 80s. We went to a bowl game every year. We cranked out NFL players. But that turnaround is fantastic. What Kim Mulkey has done with the women's basketball program is terrific. But they compete in everything. Tennis, soccer, it has really become an outstanding athletic and academic institution, and I'm really proud of that. Is there anything that you can that can key on that was specific to the turnaround? Is it as simple as getting a world-class athlete like Robert Griffin to come there and just kind of opening the eyes to the, to the whole university in general? Is it a hire that they made specifically? I mean, Well, I think it's a couple of them. I think first and foremost, the fact that Scott Drew went there and did what he did as quickly as he did with the basketball team. I mean, that basketball team was on, you know, that program was on life support uh, after the Dave Blitz situation. Nobody wanted to go there. It was toxic. They couldn't get anybody to come down there. And Scott said, yeah, I think I can make it work. Then he started to make it work. Then uh, the, the hire by Kim Mulkey, which put us back on the, uh, on the national map in terms of women's basketball when she won the first championship for her in, in 2005, was absolutely spectacular. And then obviously Art Bryles has been uh, just a home run hire. And, and when, they got, when, they, when they hired Art, they got RG3. So it was a package deal together. But as we have seen now, as good as RG3 was for that program, and he'll always be remembered as the linchpin of everything that turned it around, what Art has been able to do since that is just as important. And the facility they're building now on the Brazos is, is the new stadium on the Brazos River there is going to be absolutely spectacular. So, you know, you look at Lucas Oil uh, in, in Indianapolis and you think Peyton Manning built that stadium. RG3 is the reason why we're having this facility uh, in, uh, in, in Waco right now, and it's going to be something to be very proud of in years to come. You know, I think one of the more interesting storylines from here on out in the college football season is how far Baylor uh, football can take this season. You know, it seems like things are set up for them really well. Texas is obviously down. Oklahoma at the quarter position, quarterback position has a lot of questions, and we see what Texas did to them in the Red River rivalry last week. Baylor just seems so explosive offensively, and it, it seems like it's, it's kind of their year, and it's going to be really interesting to see if things can play out for them and they can be you know, a real national championship contender as we get into December. 
well, as much as we love to talk about Art Bryles and Petty and what the offense and Lacey Strunk and all those things that the offense are doing, the difference now is the defense. They never had a defense, even when RG3 was there and in the years since last year. But they went to West Virginia. West Virginia put 70-something on them, 60-something in that game. They, can, they get a defense that can make two or three stops now in a, in a game. And if you give that offense two or three or four stops a game, you're going to win 99% of those games because of the amazing talent they have on offense. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing in terms of looking at them as a national con- uh, title contender it's how it's it's the defense more than anything else. You know something that I think is really interesting, and we kind of talked about it a little bit, kind of joking around at the top there. But the internet, specifically with Twitter and other forms of social media, can be so incredibly negative uh, that that's I'm not breaking any ground by saying that, obviously. Right. But I think you're in a really interesting position because it seems like the internet really gravitates to you in a sense because the reasons they want to be negative uh, with ESPN and the coverage of certain events like the draft and uh, all of the the huge football things that that you guys do it seems like everyone wants to to kill Berman that's become I think Berman and Buck are like the two guys on the internet that if you want to be on the internet you got to kill these guys if you don't oh you shouldn't you don't even belong on Twitter you know you should get your your thing taken away It, it seems like though you're the guy that everyone says it could be so much better if ESPN would turn event X over to Wingo. Or, or I don't know if, if you follow me. I hope you are. I, th- I think I'm making this point clearly. But it's got to be an interesting spot for you because, one, it seems like you kind of skate away from some of the criticism that others fall into. I'm sure not all of it because God knows that. <laughs> you should see my Twitter followers. <laughs> right, yeah, everyone uh, is open to that. But uh, you, you see what I'm saying? you have an opinion on this at all? It just seems like well, – uh, you know. Look, I think that a lot of people think that what Joe does and what Chris does and on some level what I do is easy. It's not easy. And I, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people, they, well, you know, you guys didn't play. You guys, you could, anybody go in there and do that. Well, I welcome you to come in and try. And then we'll have that discussion. By the way, Joe Buck and Chris Berman are two of the greatest people I know. Okay? I was in St. Louis before I came here. I got to know Joe. You know, it, it's, it's really funny. Every team... Every game that Joe does, people say, oh, he hates my team. Both sides. That tells me he's doing the right job. If both sides say, oh, he's being partial to the other side or he doesn't like my team, then he's doing his job. By the way, talking about this, Joe Buck, I believe, I can't remember what game it was, he got criticism for a game that was on Fox that he wasn't even doing. He wasn't even calling the game, okay? So this this is where some of this comes from. People just have blind, decided biases of their own. Oh, Buck's killing my team. Well, no, Buck actually didn't do that game that you're, that you're killing him for. And every sportscaster everywhere, and I, and, I, and I mean this, owes a little bit of gratitude to Chris Berman. Okay? ESPN would not exist if it weren't for Chris Berman. And I, and I mean that sincerely. Berman built this place. He was, he was the voice, the reason, and, ev- and everything that goes along with it. And, I, and I, Chris and I have a wonderful relationship, and I'm happy, happy to call him a friend and a teammate. Does that put you in an awkward position, something, or is it, is it something that you guys, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to you guys? You know, someone says, oh, ESPN's draft coach would be so much better if they ditched Berman and put Wingo in. Is that just one of those things that is out there in the ether somewhere, but in reality, nobody gives things like that any kind of, you know, time? 
Well, look, Boomer will do the draft as long as he wants to do the draft. And this year I was able to do days two and three, and that was great. I was happy to do that. And I, I'm assuming that will be the same way it is, uh, you know, coming up in, in uh, early May this year. Chris will do day one, and I'll do day two and day three. And, and that's fine. You know, I, I have nothing to complain about. I'm 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 doing just fine. I like I like the job that I have, and I love the shows that I work on, and I'm and I'm happy to do whatever they want me to do. But uh, you know that's that's nothing that I concern myself with because there's nothing I can control. The only thing I can go out there and do the best job I possibly can on a daily basis, and that's what I try to do. You know, I always look forward to watching the draft, and even when the NFL Network started, to me the draft is on ESPN. I, you know, it doesn't really matter to me what else, who else is covering. I, when the draft starts, I turn on ESPN because that's just, I think you guys, that, that's, that's one of your guys' best, best things. Best things about ESPN is the way they cover the NFL draft. But I wonder from your perspective, are there any specific events on your calendar that you look forward to maybe more than others? Is there something that when you sit down on January 1st, you say, oh, it's another year that I get to do this event? Yeah, there's, a, there's actually a bunch of them, um, and that's a great question. First of all, the draft is fantastic on so many levels, but the best thing about the draft is, you know, we're in this cycle of television where reality shows and reality TV rule the day, and in truth, there is very little reality in reality television shows. It's all scripted. Uh, the draft is completely unscripted. We have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And that's what makes it wonderful, and that's what makes it real. Hey, everybody thought Matt Barkley was a first-round draft choice. He went first on day three. You know, it, it changes dramatically. Uh, the Tyran Matthew story last year was a, was a phenomenal thing to follow and see where it was going to fall. Uh, the draft is truly unscripted. There, there is no rundown. There's no – we just go. And, and you have to bob and weave and, and figure out your way through it, and you never know what's coming up next. You never know what, what coach or general manager or player you're going to talk to. It's a lot of fun. That one's great. Um, I love going to the Hall of Fame every year. Uh, it is a very special place if you're a, if you're a football fan. And uh, to go there every year and be a part of that is absolutely a blast. Uh, the other thing that I really, really enjoy is going to the U.S. Open and the British Open for golf. Uh, the U.S. Open, obviously, we'll have one more year of that before it goes over to Fox, and that's been wonderful for the last five years. But the British Open, or the Open Championship, as it's called over there, is the most singularly unique event out of everything I get to do because it's just so different. Everything about it is just so different than how we handle sports and big events over here as opposed to over there. And it's just it's a wonderful, in many ways, throwback event. It, it is literally open to anyone, and the, you know it never sells out. And like the, you know, the USGA handles the U.S. Open, they only have so many tickets. You can buy tickets any day and walk up and go. It's very open and free-flowing, and it's just, it's just a different deal. It's a different vibe, and especially when it's in Scotland. It's been in there the last couple of years. In 2010, it was in St. Andrews last year. Of course, it was at Muirfield. It's, golf in Scotland is the closest thing to sports religion that I can put anywhere. Yeah, a lot of family and a lot of countries love soccer, and it's big, and I get that. But there's something about golf in Scotland that I don't think anybody can really top in terms of a country's love for one thing. And it's, it's really neat to be there and be a part of it. It's, it's just, it's, you can't really describe it. You just have to go experience it. You know, I have two follow-ups to that, that answer, which was great. Thank you. For but that. I have two fo- answers to your two follow-ups. Great. Uh, the first thing is I want to just go back real quick to the draft, and you were talking about it being reality television. What is your opinion on the, the controversy that's come out about reporters kind of tipping picks 
you know, on Twitter and, and things like that and the way that was handled this year, which I, I thought was great by the NFL Network and by ESPN. But, but what about this interesting role that people who's really their job is to report uh, almost being told don't report? Well, what, what they – yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. I think uh, there's, there seems to have been a consensus that people don't want to know right beforehand what happens on TV. So, I, uh, you know, our, our producer, coordinating producer, executive producer of the NFL, Seth Markman here, came up with a really good idea. Look, you can do what you want on Twitter uh, and report, you, report whatever you want to report on Twitter, but as for television, we're going to do it this way, which means the information will get out there if people want to see it. Uh, but I, that way it's sort of, if people want to know, they can find out. Because, you know, I find myself, and I'm sure you're the same way with the generation that, that you're growing up in, you don't just watch something on television. I have my phone, I have my laptop, I have my iPad and my television. You know, and I'm doing all those things at once. Um, and so for me, if I want to know, it'll be on Twitter somewhere and I can find it. But in terms of holding off for 15 or 20 seconds, which is really what it's all about, 15, right. 20 seconds, 30 seconds mo- at most, uh, to find out what's going to happen with the pick, um, then you can do it that way. I really had no problem with, with the tipping of the picks because, uh, it, to me, it didn't offend me. It didn't bother me. Some people who did and some viewers raised enough concerns that apparently that the NFL Network and ESPN decided to go that way, and that's fine. That's their choice, and they can do whatever they want with it. It's their product. Um, but I, I didn't have a huge problem with it, but you know, the, the information is still going to get out there. It'll be on Twitter, and we'll just present it in television in a slightly different way. You know, the other thing that was really interesting, and I'm not totally surprised how much you enjoy covering the golf events, is it seems like that people have a great time covering golf. You know, it's just, I, I, I'm going to have to do it sometime because there just must be something about it that people love. But uh, in your career, where does that Sunday that Mickelson had in, at this past British Open rank is, is maybe one of the more su- surprising events? I mean, he's that's always seemed like that would be the one that would be the hardest for him to get. And certainly the way that he, he got it, it sure felt like it was out of right field to me to have a, such a historic day. Not that I didn't think Phil Mickelson could have a historic No, no, golf, I, you're exactly right. I think if anybody had said of all the major championships, that's the one he'll never win, you know, that's probably what most people would have said. And the funny thing about that is the one he probably should have won several times, the U.S. Open, is the one he doesn't have. Right. Um, and, that, boy, if that doesn't sum up golf, I don't know what does. But in terms of, like, surprising, just go back one year where Adam Scott was up four with four to play and bogeyed his way out of the Claret Jug. To Ernie Els. I mean, so yeah, what Phil Mickelson did was absolutely surprising. We had just seen it the year before, and that—that's how—that's how crazy golf is. I mean, you know, I always say I love the game and I play it, but it doesn't seem to love me back when I post my scores. Uh, and that's right. the, the vagaries of golf. Everybody that plays on the PGA Tour, the Europe—they're all great. I mean, they're not good; they're all great. The line between not keeping your card and being a top twenty-five player. Is about four strokes around, four strokes around over over an entire year. That's the difference. It's it's so thin and so hard. And just go back, by the way, to the 18th hole at Muirfield this past year. Uh, I, I think it was Mickelson's playing partner was Molinari, if I'm not mistaken, and they both hit approach shots that looked like they both could have fallen into that greenside bunker on the left. And I mean, they landed within, I want to say, three inches of each other. Phil's bounced right onto the green, and he was able to secure the championship with the way he played the 18th. Molinari's bounced into the bunker, and he made a mess of it. What a different story we might be talking about with Phil Mickelson now if his approach shot on 18 
finds that bunker and goes the other way by a couple of inches. That, that's the difference. It was that close between Phil being this guy he is now and we saying once again, Phil continues to find ways to lose major championships. That's how thin it is. <laughs> Sports, right? I was just thinking, yeah. I was just thinking as you're saying that about the Saints and Patriots game, which was you know week six of the NFL season. I was thinking about Jabari Greer's hand and how close it came to knocking. Oh, I know, mean, it's it, a fingernail, right? It's a fingernail away. Yeah, jeez. Uh, you were you were talking about how I, I was sensing the passion you have for for these golf events, and you mentioned only having one more year with the U.S. Open, and it's interesting in the sports media landscape right now how fluid all these different events are with things kind of moving from this network to that network. And, you know, which, which maybe started with the, the Fox taking the, uh, the NFC package uh, way back in the early nineties uh, from CBS at the time, but it's so far out of your control, but is that something that is on your mind when maybe you sit down at a, at us open and say, Oh, we might only have two more of these or, or when negotiations come up, are you, are you thinking, man, I, I hope our guys get the, get the right bid in or is this something that is just so far off your control that you just kind of kind of just got to roll with whatever ends up on the ESPN schedule yeah look I mean I think a lot of us thought well you know we'll, we'll figure this out we've been with them forever you know we broadcasting the US Open since God, late 80s something like that uh, it's been, been a long run and I'm sure NBC felt the same way but you, you just never know and so you cherish every one of these things you know I you know we uh, right when the lockout ended, we had heard some situations that the ESPN football deal was going to get done, and it did get right out of that. But you never know. So you know the idea that that uh, we have football is fantastic, and the idea that we still have the Masters and the and the and the the Open Championship is just great. So you cherish every one of these things because it is beyond your control. All of us do this because we're fans. We didn't. No, no one wakes up out of the womb and say, "I'm gonna objectively look at every team the same." No, you're fans. You're fans of this. This is what drives you. It's what, it's what you love about it. And so you certainly hope that every one of these things uh, can go on forever. You know, I mean, I, I, the idea of someday maybe not being able to go to the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. It's a tiny little town, and you know, in a little, in the middle of Ohio that's had more bad times than good, and over the last 25 years. But to go there and see the passion these guys have for the game and where it all started and where it came from, it's overwhelming. And you just appreciate every single moment you get to any one of these things. Sportscasters are here with Trey Wingo from ESPN. Lucky enough to have some of his time. We really appreciate it. You know, one, one thing that's sort of interesting to me in your position is that every year uh, as a new season starts, there's a new group of athletes that, that come in to work with you, guys that aren't necessarily – uh, trained to do what you do, uh, stepping into that role. You know, uh, this year Ray Lewis comes to mind as an, an athlete that that started his career at ESPN, and, and he seems to be pretty good at it. I think Randy Moss is another new guy with Fox that I think is pretty good at it. But every once in a while, there's a guy like maybe Emmett Smith. I don't want to pick on Emmett Smith, but maybe who it doesn't quite work out as great for. And I'm curious from your seat, how long does it take you to know when you're working with someone if it's going to go right or if it's maybe the wrong or the right hire like can you can you tell right away or or no i don't i don't think you can tell right away um because every it's it's a different path for everybody um i think the two guys that i've seen in my jeez 11 years of doing this show uh that have just come right off the bat and been the best like literally right out of the box right off the street and onto the set have been teddy bruski and jeff saturday this year who's been absolutely phenomenal 
and there are other there are other guys that you know took a little bit and then worked, but now they're they're doing great. It's it's like trying to find a sports casting job. There's no there's no definitive answer. You know what I mean? If you do this this and this, you'll have success. It doesn't work that way. This is this is not a this is not like you know I'll go get a degree here, go to law school, be hired at a law firm, have 2.5 children, live happily ever after. This business doesn't work that way. There's no you could do everything right and still not get a job, or you could not do everything that everyone else does and someone likes you, and boom, that's it. That's all it takes. Um, preparation is the most important thing, and I think that the guys that are willing to do the work and put it in and and, and, and watch the tape and see the film and relate to how it was when they played and translate it to what's going on now, those guys will always find a way to get it done. Do you ever kind of pick out a player? Like, do you ever see maybe through interviews or, or that you conduct or, or watching other interviews, do you say, like, wow, that's a guy who could really do this? I hope they consider broadcasting oh, when they're done. Absolutely. Yeah. No question. And, and you know, we, we had a little bit of that uh, this year, actually. Ryan Clark works with us. Uh, the Steelers' safety. We have a really unique relationship with him on NFL Live this year that we've never had with an active player. He, you know, he basically comes on once a week for a couple of days and is with us. And we've never sort of had that uh, much of a relationship or an inroad with an active player before, and it's been wonderful. And he's going to be an absolute star uh, in this in this business uh, whenever his playing days are over. And we wish him to play as long as he wants to play. But the the other thing that's neat is guys like Teddy, who really didn't talk much when he was with the Patriots, because that was just not the way they did it. You know, uh, to, to see what he's been able to do has been great. And even Jeff Saturday. You know, Jeff Saturday's a center. You know, nobody interviews a center. You don't really talk to a center that much. But he's been really good. So uh, it, it's it's always fun to sort of know. You think you know these guys are going to be good, but then to find guys that you really never got a chance to talk too much and see what they're able to do, it's, it's, it's neat. It's a lot of fun. You know, we're already six weeks through this, and by the time our listeners get a chance to hear this conversation, we'll be seven. And I'm curious... As we've seen seven weeks, or six, well, seven by the time we, this is heard, but uh, what are some kind of big picture things that you're looking forward to see playing out in the last ten weeks or so of the regular season and into the playoffs? Well, it, the, the, the situation obviously in the AFC West is fascinating. Uh, this is the 54th and 55th time in the Super Bowl era we've had teams start 6-0 and or better but it's the first time ever they've both been in the same division. Now, again, this may change, depends on what happened over the weekend, but the fact that, that, that these two teams have been so good and heading into this coming Sunday where the last two undefeateds are in the same division is, is neat because normally you could say, okay, it's going to be a showdown, blah, 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 who's going to get... They, we don't even know who's going to win the division yet, and it, the way they do it is so completely different. Obviously, the, the Broncos may be the greatest offense we'll ever see, yeah. And the Chiefs' defense has been absolutely stifling. So that's been a lot of fun. I'm curious to see if Chip Kelly will find some middle ground with Philadelphia. For all the talk about he's going to revolutionize the game, they've had one great half. and It's been about it, which is week one against the Washington team. Well, by the way, turned it over three straight possessions, which certainly helps you to get all those plays. You know, Outside of that, they haven't been really what everybody thought they could do. Um, so I'm curious to see if, if he can adapt what he wanted to do at Oregon and what he wants to do in the NFL and find some middle ground because you can't you can't do the things that he wanted to do at Oregon in the NFL because you a you don't have 80 players b you, you you just can't spread the field that much on offense you're going to get your quarterback hurt I mean look what's happened with Michael Vick already um, so and you know he mismanaged one game against San Diego where he was so anxious to run plays in and run plays in he got another play in for the two minute warning. If he had drained the clock a little bit more and run another play after the two-minute warning, there's probably no chance the Chargers find a way to get that kick and come back and beat him. 
Um, those are little things that are going to take some time. Uh, so those, those are those are a couple of things. Obviously, we're curious to see if Peyton Manning continue this this absolute torrid pace and see if he's going to break the record that Tom has, which took the touchdown pass record away from Peyton, which is all all interesting. Um, there's all kinds of things, and then the best thing is you you just never know. The best thing the NFL does is sells hope. Okay, last year was the first time in 16 years we didn't have five different teams make the playoffs that didn't make it a year ago. Uh, we had four. Last year was also the tenth straight year we've had at least one team go from worst to first in their own division. It was the Washington Redskins, and the Kansas City Chiefs certainly are making a case for that to be a possibility again, as well as some other teams uh, around the NFL. Look at what New Orleans has done after what they did last year, where they were a four-win team. So, uh, it's it. The NFL is very cyclical, and outside of when Peyton was in Indianapolis and the New England Patriots with Tom Brady, very few teams can just you can just bank on saying, "Yep, oh, they'll be in the playoffs." It's absolutely guaranteed. The turnover is remarkable, and and that's one of the things I'm always curious to see how that plays out. You mentioned Chip Kelly, and you did mention uh, the Saints there a little bit. Are, are you surprised at all what an impact that the return of Sean Payton has had on the Saints? No. What I'm surprised at is how quickly they've been able to fix the defense. Yeah. Uh, they were statistically the worst defense in the history of the NFL last year. The, the official stat for, for defenses in the NFL is yards given up per game. As long as we've played this game, and as long as there have been calculators and abacuses and slide rules and all that kind of stuff to figure it out, no defense had given up more yards per game than the New Orleans Saints in 2012. So uh, the most surprising thing for me has been how Rob Ryan has come in there and made that defense you know, decent and even better than decent after an absolutely abysmal year a year ago. Guys turned into a folk hero in NOL, NOLA too, you know. Buying and he's the, he's got the perfect look for the city. He sure does. Uh, Trey Wingo from ESPN, really appreciate his time. You can find him on Twitter. He's at WingOZ, which is probably the best way to say that. You can find Wingos. Him. Wingos, yeah, you can find him there. Uh, this has been great. One last thing, and I'll let you go on this. Curious. I know you only had one quote in that giant. ESPN book that James Andrew Miller wrote. I don't know how he wrote that many pages and only got one quote from you in there, but <laughs> let's say the guy who writes that screenplay says, you know what this thing needs is more Wingo, and he puts puts a couple scenes in. Who would you, who would you want to play you in that movie? Oh, the best-looking guy they could find. How's that? <laughs> but I think, you know, Clooney would do pretty good with for you, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. If, if, people, if people want to associate me with George Clooney, freaking go for it, man. <laughs> Have at it. Listen, I, I appreciate this so much. Thank you so much for the time, and uh, thank you. No worries, man. Happy to do it. Try to be best, because you're only a man, and a man's got to learn to take it. Try to believe, though the going gets rough, that you got a hand tough to make it. History repeats itself. All right, we want to thank Trey Wingo from ESPN for being on the podcast today. It was really a treat to have Trey on. And again, we want to thank ESPN PR for helping us set that up. All right, new segment, which we're going to call the greatest of all time. Here's, here's what I was thinking. A couple things. One, I haven't been crazy about Five on Fantasy this year. You know why that is? <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're going to say, but I don't, I don't think it's that. No? I just think that... It's maybe one of those things, and maybe it was true last year, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was even true the year before, 
but it just seems like a saturated market to me. You know what? And to some extent, it feels like everyone is talking about it, and I just find it hard to believe maybe that any of our listeners are listening to find out who we think should start or sit that week. Sure, and I like the idea of the doing lead lead up to fantasy football because that's yep. when it's most important anyway during the right. draft. I like the idea we gave out some midseason awards. I think a week or two ago, or uh, and I like the idea of giving out maybe postseason awards. awards. Right. I don't think we're scrapping it forever. No, I just don't. Think but it I do needs agree with you. Show every week. The other problem with our starts and sits is we never. Nobody did anyone write to us and beat us up over no. our starts or sits because I we don't didn't, think people care enough. Right, and we didn't really check ourselves on it either. Right, I, I just don't think there's enough value there. And obviously, the book club is is still a thing for sure. Sure, and we're going to be doing that. We get our best guests because of right, it, and we have a huge one coming up, maybe. Maybe, I mean, fingers crossed. If it works out, it's going to be one of those drop the mic moments for the podcast. <laughs> like maybe we don't ever get a better guest. Maybe, right? Who so, who is the who is the biggest name guest we've had right now? It's probably Peter King or Rich Eisen, right? Or Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses. Right, Moses. I was thinking Duff McKagan too. Right. right. So probably one of those three guys, and I think this easily tops all three of them. Yes, I think there's a. Duff McKagan, you have to be like a rock music fan. I think the guy we're potentially looking into. You can be a fan of a lot of different avenues and may have seen him or heard of him. Right. So if this works out, and pray for us. Cause it, <laughs> and the funny thing is, is right now, if someone told me to bet my house one way or another, I'd probably bet that we get it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So we'll see. But anyway, uh, so the, the book club will still be around and Five of Fantasy will still be around for sure. But we wanted to try something new this week, and we're going to call it the greatest of all time. And I kind of started thinking about this uh, around the time that Mariano Rivera was retiring and all the different ceremonies were going on. And this is a big Twitter thing. I think since Twitter, people love nominating things as the greatest of all time. Cause it looks really cool on Twitter. Did Twitter pick up the, is it like where the goat came from? I think so. Like I've always heard great best of all time. Great. But like the people have really picked up G O A T. Yeah. I think that's of kind time. of a Twitter, Twitter thing. thing. Yeah. And uh, our idea here is this each week or each week that we do this, uh, the three of us will nominate, uh, three things as the greatest of all time in categories that we come up with that span anywhere that this podcast has gone, whether it be music or movies or television or sports. Uh, anything that we've done in this podcast or will do is fair game. And uh, Don and I will go back and forth giving our weekly nominations. Each of us have the opportunity to challenge uh, one of the other person's nominations. And it will be really interesting if on a given week uh, we happen to nominate something in the same category. We are not going to tell each other what we nominate. No. We're going to keep it private until right now. At this point, Don doesn't know what my categories are, and I don't know what his are. I do not. And we might have to tweak this based on what you said because mine are out there. Our our outside interests tend to vary. They do. Uh, they do, but uh, we're, we'll, pretty, we're pretty adventurous on this show, too. I right. mean, there's not many people I wouldn't be willing to try. Sure. You know what I mean? If someone said... You can have a chance to interview someone in video games. I'd do that. Sure. Someone said you have a chance to interview a famous barber. I'd probably try that. You know, <laughs> Why as, not? As ridiculous as that sounds. Right. But uh, the point is, is I think one thing that will make this really fun is if you guys out there give us your nominations too. Or so blast we, us for ours. Yeah, or make fun of ours. Like that, that'll be good. Uh, you can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com or you can give us your greatest of all time nominations on Twitter. Tell us who the greatest 
of all time is in whatever category you feel, and we'll certainly share them in this segment on the show. So, Don, I will give you the honor of making the first declaration of the greatest of all time on the Sportscasters podcast. Okay, here's the one that's going to be the furthest, I think, from your area of interest, maybe. Uh, The greatest Mario Party of all time is Mario Party 2. I love Mario Party. I do. Okay. Uh, If I were to nominate one, it'd be the Wii one, which I think was eight, right? It was good. My problem with it is Mario Party 1 is a little bit too unforgiving. There's games that, like, if you're dominating the other person, you just dominate the other person. It also had this weird uh, joystick spinning thing that would, like, break your controllers and actually give you blisters on your palms. Mario Party 2 had a little bit of that skill over not skill, for lack of a better word, but it wasn't as brutal. But I find the further they've gone into the series, the more they've gotten luck involved. And the Wii one's good. But what system was two played on primarily? N64. N64, okay. Yeah, I'm not going to kill you on that. Like I said, I do enjoy Mario Party. I did also. It's brilliant for, for in the general. Wii. Yep. And uh, if I were to nominate one, it would be the Wii. But I, I'm not going to argue too much about yours. That's one I'd be interested to get some feedback on. Because I feel like a lot of people play Probably, Mario Party. Probably, yeah. All right. My first nomination Every single month, wrestling has a pay-per-view. And every single month, they say it's the greatest night in the history of sports entertainment. Really? And I'm going to tell you that they're wrong every month except for April of 1987 (laughs) when WrestleMania (laughs) three was the greatest wrestling pay-per-view of all time. First of all, it it was performed in front of the largest crowd in the history of sports entertainment. Over 93,000 people filled into the Pontiac Silverdome in Detroit, Michigan for WrestleMania three. It had probably the most anticipated main event in wrestling history with Hulk Hogan defending the WWF Championship against Andre the Giant. And it probably had the greatest match of all time for the Intercontinental title when Ricky Steamboat got to avenge the Macho Man for crushing his larynx with the ring bell (laughs) and winning the Intercontinental Championship. And I just don't think that this one can be debated. I think easily WrestleMania three is the greatest wrestling event of all time. Yeah, I, I wouldn't debate it either. I would say the one that had The Rock and Hogan. Which I believe was in Toronto. I think that's WrestleMania 18. I think we watched that in Fredonia. Or at least I did. Yeah, it was WrestleMania 18. And that, it was think, better than I thought. Like that final match was really, really See, good, and problem, I got into it for not being that into the wrestling. The problem with that is the match before that was a women's title match. Oh, really? You know what I mean? Like, that that might be the best main event ever, but okay. I just... Cause the, the whole event Definitely was. the best crowd for a main event ever. I mean, the crowd for that Rock and Hogan was unbelievable, and it made that match unbelievable, but, I mean, the Iron Sheik had B. Brian Blair in a camel clutch <laughs> minutes before Hogan and Andre right. and could have humbled him right? and didn't. Um, I'm debating which one I think you'll think is more controversial. I will go with Donatello as the greatest Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle of all time. Uh, I think he... It's definitely not Raphael. He's the smarts of the group. Right. He is, uh, he's funny like Michelangelo without being like a, like a head case or like a wild child. I think he is the glue that holds the Ninja Turtles together. Raphael is the most emo. He's yeah. always getting them into trouble. Yeah, no way. Even if he's the most skilled fighter, he's always causing them problems. Yeah. Leonardo's a little too straight-laced. I don't disagree. 
I'm excited about this one. I think you're All right. right. I, I Sweet. agree. He's, I'm sure that people will write in about that one. Too. I wonder what your brother Greg would say. I think he he's would a Raphael be the guy. foremost think, expert on this. I think he would he's go a Raphael, Raphael guy. I'm going to have to disagree with you on that, Greg. Maybe Michelangelo. He'd be fourth on my list, I think. Raphael. I think Leonardo is my fourth. Leonardo. I think it's Donatello, Michelangelo, and then Leonardo, Raphael. They're just – they're both uh, – have caused problems with their bickering and right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right, uh, the assassination of JFK, the greatest assassination of all time. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that in a happy sense. Okay, I mean it in a historically significant sense. Sure. Um, the 1960s, obviously, a crazy decade for our country. Not only was JFK assassinated, but so was Martin Luther King, and so was his brother Robert Kennedy. Both of those guys in 1968. This one happened November 22nd, 1963, almost 50 years ago. I'd like to do something around the 50th anniversary to get somebody on to talk about this. I just think it's incredibly fascinating. It's maybe the one mystery that yeah. will never be solved. I, I tend to think it probably isn't a conspiracy because I just think somehow we would have known by now. But all of the intrigue that surrounds it, the fact that there's film, the Zapruder film is maybe the first – Viral video. Viral video. Yeah. You know, it is I, – I just think with all of the elements uh, – think about this, and this is sick, but we witnessed, literally saw the brains of one of our president blown out of the right. back of his head. That We've literally seen that. Yep. I'm not going to make a strong argument against that. The only thing – the only guy I would, I would say, and the events make JFKs more significant because of, like you said, the intrigue, the mystery, and all that – the only other one I would say cultural significance would be John Lennon. Would that be considered an assassination? That was probably an assassination, I'm, yes. I'm not sure exactly how what falls under assassination, but that's the only other one I could think that would be close. And I just wonder, you know, JFK didn't even get to finish one term as president. And I wonder how this country would, have, would be different today had JFK served eight years instead of three. Sure. I wonder if we would have had a Vietnam. I wonder if the cold war would have escalated to the way it, I just wonder how things would be different. I wonder if the bipartisan hate that divides this country daily right, would cause, still exist. Cause he's probably the last president that was universally seemingly loved by the entire country. Right. I mean, people cried when they found out that he was, sh- I, I wasn't born yet, but I would have cried. Yeah. I'm not taking anything away from Martin Luther King, but I think for cultural significance, I think it's him or probably John Lennon. Okay. Um, my third thing, not much controversy here, but that said, we'll get the most email about this. I think pink is the greatest of the starburst flavors. <laughs> really? I think that's strawberry. Yeah. Yep. I I have to go with whatever the red is. Cherry, I, think I that's guess. That's cherry. Yep. Yeah, I'm strong in the the red here. Okay. <laughs> if I open a a strip of starburst, right? You know the traditional packaging. Yep. I can't wait to throw the yellow on the ground. Yeah, yellow seems you to know, be universally the least favorite. I want to get to red. Pink I think, would certainly be second on my list. That is the debate, I think. I yeah, think I it's, think, it's I think those are always red. one, two, and yeah. then probably orange and third, like a respectable third. But and yellow, yellow is always fourth. last. They're all good. I, I didn't think enough about this, but if I was thinking of greatest of all time chewy fruit candy, Starburst as a whole might be number one. I'd have to... Put more thought into that, though, because there are things like uh, what are the uh, Laffy Taffies and uh, 
shoot, I can't think of Airheads. Airheads, yeah. Those are good too, but Starburst might might want that. But yeah, Pink, I'm gonna put as my greatest. Yeah, I'm interested to see what people say. The sportscasters at gmail.com and at sports underscore casters on Twitter about that. This is the one I thought might overlap based on what's been going on in your life the last couple of months. I'm going to say uh. The Sopranos is the greatest television series of all time. And I thought you might go this way just because you've spent so much time sure, with, with another Bad. one of the ones that would be considered in this spot. You know what? I think if we got a thousand emails about this, you get three a majority of them would either be The Wire, The Sopranos, or Breaking Bad. Yep, and the Breaking Bad... And the fact that it wasn't happy, but it was still phenomenal, that's what's going to get me and my wife to watch The Wire. Because I think selling her on that before might not have always been easy. But, uh, boy, it's Cult of the New right now. But I think if you ask me right now, I'd say Breaking Bad is my favorite of all time. But I, I'm i separated from The Sopranos. I need, I, I need a year to think about it. I something. always thought – I'll always say this. The Breaking Bad had the best last season of any show ever. If my category was the best final season of a television show, wow, the last eight episodes of Breaking Bad would win that Okay, by so you're a counting mile. that as season five, part two, or whatever. Right. Okay. I would give that by a mile because The Sopranos is the same thing, season six, part one and two. Sure. And they didn't come anywhere near the drama that Breaking Bad did in their last run. I think The Sopranos' final run was 10, Breaking Bad was eight. Breaking Bad crushes them. My. My brother Kurt's starting to watch this now, and the one thing that separates Breaking Bad from The Sopranos for me, and again, I'm going to give it some space and maybe ask me in a year and I'll get back to this, but there's there's almost zero disposable characters in Breaking Bad. Like, every death in there is super significant. In The Sopranos, you'd get people that would watch The Sopranos back in the day when it was being shown live or whatever, new, that would say, like, oh, nobody died this episode, that was no fun. You know what I mean? Like, there was a lot of killing in The Sopranos, and there was a lot of killing in Breaking Bad, but, like, Breaking Bad was a lot of main characters, and it wasn't just at the end with the, the big-name guys. So, I think each series had a slow season. I think, you know, Sopranos Season 6 Part 1 was pretty slow, probably too much of the Johnny Cake stuff. <laughs> and I think that Breaking Bad Season 5 Part 1... The one we watched in Fredonia, hurt. a lot of people... Knock as a slow soprano. Was that four? I liked that season, though. Yeah, I didn't hate it, but a lot of people... Was that the Steve Buscemi season? That was five. Okay. Steve Buscemi season was five. And I thought that was great, because I thought Buscemi was great. Right. Um, The Sopranos, I think the acting... I mean, James Gandolfini is incredible. They're both phenomenal. They're both phenomenal. The reason I think The Wire falls off is because the season five is is unwatchable. Is it really? It's watchable the first time, because you want to know what happens to everyone. But I would never watch season five of it again. Now, we're getting into this a little bit, but uh, The Wire seems more real than these other two. The, not, not, the Wire is certainly the most authentic. Now, do you think people say they love love it more because they feel it's a smarter show to say you like a lot? Maybe. You know I'm what? not saying it's not good. I haven't seen it yet. I think what makes The Wire stack up is they have three seasons – that someone could say to you is the best season in the history of television, and they'd have a great debate. Huh? Yeah, that'll be. I think next Sopranos, Sopranos season one, and Breaking Bad five B would be the nominees for sure for those individual series as the best season of the show. I think for The Wire, you'd have a hard time debating between one, three, and four. Hmm. Any one of those three. That's where the strength I think of 
the wire is. And plus, the wire reinvented itself each year, right? And pretty much did it successfully every year, with the exception of maybe two and five. I think they did two really well. A lot of people don't. Most people think they blew five. But do you agree with? I mean, you called it unwatchable, so you agree with that? It's watchable the first time. It's unwatchable a second time. I can watch any season of The Sopranos again. I can watch sure. any season of Breaking Bad again, probably. I have watched just about every season of The Wire again, but I've never sat down to watch five again. Wow, yep. All right, I hope everybody liked this segment because I think this is going to be what I look forward to the most this each week. It's a little bit different. This it's was a silly. great start, I think. A lot of fun. The greatest of all time. Give us some nominations. What is the greatest of all time in the category most important to you? Email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. Or let us know on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back and geek out on Pearl Jam a bit with AJ Delirio. Our next guest is from Churchville, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of LaSalle University. He is a former editor at Deadspin and Gawker Media, and is currently an editorial director for Spin Media. He is a Pearl Jam superfan making his second appearance on the podcast, The Warm Swordscasters. Welcome to AJ Delirio. What's up, AJ? How are you, man? Really good. Just an exciting time to be a Pearl Jam fan, you know? Yeah, it's a very expensive and busy time. It won't travel time. <laughs> it's, it's worth it. That's it's true. like an annual event. Well, let's let's save the Pearl Jam stuff. Um, let's, let me ask you a couple of things just to catch up a little bit because it's a, it's been a while since you've been on. Actually, last time you were on, you were still at Deadspin, and since then you uh, moved to Gawker for a year, and then now you're at Spin. And I was just looking up some stuff uh, before you called in, and I thought that this was really interesting. I just wanted to get your get your your comment on it. Somebody, let me get his name here. Uh, okay, so they were talking about you you leaving. Uh, uh, Gawker and um, uh, the man who made the statements here his last name is Denton I guess okay Okay. Yeah. He, he said this about your tenure and I'm just curious if it's accurate and what you thought about it he said AJ's tenure at Gawker has been much like him bold, infuriating, unpredictable and awfully brilliant is that fair? Uh, yeah that's very complimentary <laughs> I mean I think, I think, I think it's, just like, it's, a, it's a very succinct way of doing all my uh, you know, positives and negatives and uh, most of it comes out positively, even the negative stuff. So, obviously, at Deadspin, you were focusing on sports and sports media and all the crazy stuff you did on Deadspin, which we mostly talked about when you were on last time. And then you moved on to Gawker, which is a, a broader range there. And then now you're at Spin, and you, from what I can tell, you're focusing on improving the uh, the internet footprint of like Vibe and Spin. Is that sort of accurate? Um, at, at this point, it's, it's a little, you know, less day-to-day with them. I mean, right now, I'm kind of just, like, focusing on their entertainment properties. I mean, they have, like, 26 sites, um, all of which I can't even name at this point. But, you know, I've, I've been here a month, so it's more about me just, like, getting up to speed with everyone who works here and figuring out what it is they actually want me to do. So, right now, I'm just, like, a desk jockey, just hanging out, you know, <laughs> I'm living a corporate life. <laughs> what is most exciting to you about this challenge, focusing more specifically on entertainment as opposed to some of the other stuff you did in sports? Or, um, well, I mean, I, I you know, I, I've been with you know, Gawker Media for at least five years, and you know, I, I just actually liked the 
management side of things. And I especially just like, you know, like situations where I can both kind of manage and write and just like, you know, be very hands on with a lot of stuff. And that opportunity kind of presented itself here. And, you know, I, I think it's good for anyone to kind of just like, you know, work for as many places as possible. And you know, I, I needed something different other than Docker, you know, on my uh, virtual resume at this point. What kind of last thing about Gawker, when you look back on your time there and at Deadspin, is there anything specific that you're most proud of or any specific accomplishment or maybe story that you broke or anything that when you look back, you think, wow, that was really, really something I'm proud of there? I mean, I, you know, I, I think I had probably one of the best experiences you could at my time at Gawker. And I'm just like, you know, basing that on a lot of other people who I know have you know, worked there throughout the years. And it was, it was a really, it was a really nice thing to kind of come into a situation where basically inheriting Deadspin from Will and, you know, just to make it a little different than that. Cause I mean, he had a very successful site. It was very popular. And I, I know there are a lot of people who loved his version a lot more than they loved mine. But I, I think at the same point, I mean, there was at least enough of a growth behind it that it's, it's it's closer to, you know, my version of it than it is his, and I think it's like a perfect like kind of melding of both things under Tommy right now. When you uh, looking forward now, is there something specifically when when you took this new position that, and I, I know it's not quite as defined. This might be a better question for you in two or three months. But is there anything specifically that when you went into this, you're like, you know, I think I can really make a positive change in this direction for this specific version of of the media group or is there any specific goal you have? Yeah. I mean, I, and the goal is essentially just to get everyone kind of, you know, working here focused on something that I think will be a you know, long lasting and something they'd be proud of. I mean, it may seem a little vague, but um, at the same, at the same time, I mean, it's a, it's a very unique situation in that it's just so much different than, you know, Gawker is or was and, yeah, this company comes with a lot of baggage to it, and uh, yeah, there, there are some things that I, I think I can control, and you know, other things I can't. But uh, you know, for the most part, I mean, it's just to at least have some people kind of just like doing the work that they signed up for, and with having them happy at their jobs. I mean, that's that's all you can ask for in any place, and then it's like you know, the rest kind of just like you know, break through the way. You know, one thing I'm curious about. I was just thinking about this. You mentioned Will, Will, and I was just thinking about, you know, everything is so Cardinals right now with him. You know, it's just like, you think of Will, you think of the Cardinals, and, and obviously with them being in the World Series, a lot of it's a lot of tweets and pictures and, and Cardinals, you know, this and that. I'm just wondering, being away from covering sports or working in sports day-to-day, do you find yourself enjoying being a fan of sports more now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, mean, I think there was, you know, I, I don't think I... A, I mean, covered Deadspin is just like even as sports heavy as as Will did. I mean, I, I did try to kind of just focus on a lot of just like the sports culture and obviously, I mean, the <laughs> behind the scenes stuff a little more than he did. And you know, I always I always try to kind of approach like Deadspin as just something that was going to be a, a, a nastier version of the sports pages in some ways. And uh, I guess I'll just say to. Cover it with a, I mean, out with a with a sense of just like a ruthlessness and recklessness that I think was was welcome at the time and uh, is probably something that will eventually just like you know kind of just bleed into everyone's mainstream coverage at some point. So, all right, 
that was all. Thank you for all that. It's very interesting for no sure. Problem. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I build you off the top there as a Pearl Jam super fan, which I think is a. a, a I was thinking about this term Pearl Jam super fan, listening to Howard Stern the other day. Uh, uh-huh. You know, because they have you know Stern show super fans, you know, and they do this right. the, the, Stern, the Stern show roundtable, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about um, Steve Gleason and uh, the amazing piece. I don't know if you've seen it on ESPN that that uh, they put together with uh, Pearl Jam and Steve Gleason. Yeah, and, I did see parts of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, it was great, and uh, I was just thinking about you know our show sort of being known a little bit as being hosted by two guys who are. Uh, people, you know, accuse us of being Pearl Jam apologists, and you know, obviously, we're huge Pearl Jam fans. I was lucky enough to go to my 75th show last week in Buffalo, and um, I was thinking it'd be cool if we brought people on the show, kind of in that same kind of Pearl Jam super fan capacity. And I thought of you only because I've noticed in the last year or so that you're a big Pearl Jam fan. I, I know you went to Wrigley, yeah. and you know, so tell me a little bit about you as a Pearl Jam fan. I guess there's a long-winded way to get at that. Um, well, you know, it was, it was, it was obviously, I mean, during, you know, the, my senior year of high school was, you know, when they first came out, but I mean, at the time, you know, during that era, and I'm talking just like, you know, during the whole Nirvana, Pearl Jam, grunge era explosion, I mean, I was more of a, a Soundgarden fan than anything else. Um, you know, loved Pearl Jam's music, but I mean, was not completely 100% as into them as I am now. And you know that that like you know, switch actually happened when it was the first time I saw them. I saw them in uh, 1996 in London at uh, Wembley Arena, and it was during like the whole entire No Code tour, so it was like the anti Ticketmaster thing. And right. I just you know happenstance there were tickets on sale for like 15 bucks that day, and I'm like, oh hey, okay, I mean I'll check these guys out. And um, you know I think the minute Eddie Vedder said hello, I mean I was just hooked. I mean, I, I mean, I got like the band, and I appreciated the band in just like you know such a larger way. Where just like I mean, it was you know I think the rock show I've been kind of waiting for my whole life in a lot of ways. Well, I know that's a lot of hyperbole behind it, but at the same time, it's just like you know I, I think anyone who is a super fan, quote unquote, I mean, is is more hooked on the live shows than anything else at this point. It's so funny because you're just a little bit older than me. So you said you were a senior when 10 came out. I was probably about 11 when it came out. Uh, but uh. my first show was also on the No Code Tour in Buffalo. I was 16. Unfortunately, I had to pay $150 for my ticket. There was no 15, <laughs> there was no $15 tickets available that day in Buffalo. I think the show sold out in eight minutes, and it was this silly like phone thing, and you had a call. And, right, yeah. Right, yeah, it was, right, a, it, right, yeah. It was a disaster. Uh, but same thing for me. My first song was Oceans. So basically, that was mine too. Yeah, that's so funny. The <laughs> first thing I ever heard Eddie Vedder say in person was "hold." You know, literally the right. word "hold." Like that was the first thing that came out of the speakers. And I think I just sort of froze where I was and said, "Wow, this is this." Like you said, what I've been waiting to see. I had maybe twenty concerts in at that point, only sixteen, but. I don't know. I feel like, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit too. I feel like since then, I've kind of went on a personal evolution with the band and, and kind of changed as they've changed and sort of evolved as a fan as they've evolved as a band. And, you know, whether it's, you know, going from Jack Irons to Matt Cameron, which happened from right. the first to second show, to being lucky enough to be there with them in the first show post uh, Denmark in 2000. 
seeing them for the first time in Seattle, uh, being diagnosed with Crohn's disease right around the time that Mike McCready came out with Crohn's disease and struggling with right. that and kind of uh, getting through it through him and his kind of openness about it. Uh, but I don't know. It just it feels like if you were willing to take this journey with them at any point, somehow you just find a way to real easily kind of move along with them. And it's somewhat, I don't know, cathartic. And like you said, it almost seems like there's a little bit of hyperbole about it. But do you know what I'm kind of driving at? Oh, yeah. I totally, and it's, it's, you know, the, the one thing I love having conversations with people about are people that, like, I mean, do not really, you know, fully grasp, I mean, why I would go to so many shows. And, I, and I've probably been to half as many as you have. But you know, still, it's, so it's a little odd, especially just like, you know, I'm like 39 years old and willing to travel for them and everything like that. But, you know, I, I explain it, you know, it's just like, it, it pretty much boils down to this. I mean, you know, obviously I've done a lot of partying in my life and a lot of, you know, other things. But, I mean, this is just like, one of the things where I can actually just like find pure joy pretty easily. And, uh, and it, it never felt that way. I mean, just like, you know, I've, there are shows that are better than others, obviously. And sometimes you're kind of leaving just like feeling a little flat because you've been to so many and you're like hoping for certain things to happen. But, you know, once you have like the camaraderie and just like, you know, friendship with like, you know, a lot of people that, I, that I've had just in high school, it's just, it becomes like something you know, bigger than just a concert, and um, you know that's that's how I kind of go about it. Where it's just like you know, I almost feel left out if I don't attend like X amount of shows, or I miss you know, like Saturday night, I'm like kicking myself because I went to an engagement party instead of that one. But um, I mean, that, that's that's really what it is for me, and just like you know, I it was I know that it's obviously got an expiration date on it. And I just want to get in as much as I possibly can while they're still like you know as thriving as they are yeah a couple things uh, after the Wrigley show uh the music writer i guess at grantland had written uh written a review about the show which was fairly positive and so i figured out oh, let me let me hit this guy up and let's let's talk to him and, and see what he thought of it i had just went to london and, and to Wrigley as well and uh it's kind of like on a personal program high at the time and i remember the one the one thing that's always going to stick out about that conversation is him being so incredibly shocked that I said Yield was my favorite album and I didn't right. say 10 or Versus or Vitology. And I, I, I couldn't understand why someone who writes about music for a living couldn't understand that it was possible that something besides the band's most commercially successful work could be someone's favorite. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, well, I mean, you like I, I forget you know, the name of the writer, but I think you just did something too about um, you know right before the Brooklyn shows, correct? Where he did like kind of like the seminal moments, which was like Pearl Jam. Oh, did he? I'll have to check that out. Yeah, Steve. I Hyden believe so. It was, that, and it was actually pretty you know thoughtfully done, and he did have this kind of he actually had this kind of line in there, which I thought was actually interesting. Where it's just like you can almost like tell like the level of Pearl Jam fan by like you know what their favorite album is and just like and most of the time it's just like it's just like kind of like a Pearl Jam snob it's just like no code or yield and then like you know then there's just like the first batch of people who just like kind of always stick by Ken um, and you know for me it's, it's it's no code like end to end is and you know a lot of the later stuff is like you know the stuff that I kind of just like attach myself to just because I've seen the bulk of those scores and I, I mean, I'm I'm always just like you know I, I head to the bathroom at even slow and <laughs> stuff like that. So right, right. Um, 
but but I mean, it is it is one of those things where I think you have to kind of really just like be into the band in a way where just like I mean, you have to kind of just like you know you've already you've already gotten over the fact that just like I right, this is this is not a grunge band to me. This is not like classic rock to me. This is like more part of something that I actually just like kind of listen to just you know in so many different ways. So, all right, so. One and you mentioned the the newer music, and I wanted to ask you about Lightning Bolt, obviously, and kind of one official week later. I'm not sure if you if you held out and waited. I usually do and did, but um, what are your kind of thoughts uh, about Lightning Bolt and kind of where it fits in uh, one week into it here? Well, I there are certain I mean there are certain songs that I, I think are I I am at, at the stage now where I just think they're. Some of their heavier stuff, I mean, it sounds like they're trying too hard. They almost, like, show their age in some of their songs. But, you know, I mean, I think so far, I mean, just, like, I, I mean, I think Pendulum as an opener, like, holds up pretty well. Yeah. And it makes sense. And it's, like, one of those things that I think you can probably see them opening with for, like, you know, several tours to come at this point. And, um, yeah, there, I mean, there are definitely some songs that, I mean, I think I will get more used to after several listens and... But, uh, I mean, for the most part, it's just, I, I like the fact that it's just, there are songs that you can take away from that album that I mean, I could, like, be pretty satisfied with hearing live at this point. So you went to Brooklyn night one, you said. Did you go to anything yeah. before, and are you going to anything else this tour? Um, I'm looking to go to Philly tomorrow night, and I'm trying to do some of the West Coast leg. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, just, I mean, like, right now, also, I mean, with the job, I kind of, I'm pretty much by coastal at this point in terms of like, you know, at the end of the month, I usually head out to LA and that kind of matches up when they're going to be out there. So I, I will definitely do that. Um, but I mean, it's, I've had, I've had this very, very like dumb, like I, I not even dumb luck because that dumb luck means it's kind of good, but I, I I've always kind of just like you know, missed <laughs> the show. I've blessed her. I mean, I missed London, Ontario, which I mean, most people said it was just like an amazing show. Yeah, it was I great. mean, obviously, I mean, Wrigley was like a great experience, but I mean, it was the rain and everything like that and like kind of like the certain set was, it was like a more of a festival show than I had actually hoped for. And, you know, and then this time around, obviously, I mean, I think Brooklyn first night, I mean, there was, you know, the first set was so weird and great. And I thought they kind of just like, you know, tapered off a little bit. But then, you know, obviously, I mean, second show when they're pulling out, like, leaving here and stuff along that line, which was, you know, some of the, like, little Easter egg songs that I mean, I kind of been hoping for for, like, you know, between my last ten shows, I would say. Yeah, you know, it's funny, too, about that Brooklyn 2 show, it was all those yesterdays. It's actually the only, so they have ten studio albums now, and I've heard every single song except all those yesterdays and now Getaway and, um... Uh, the ukulele song that's on the new album, uh, right? So which they haven't played either of those two yet. But so uh, every time they play all those yesterdays, now I'm like, oh, I should have been there. You know, like damn it. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I you know, like Brooklyn Night One was actually the first time I saw Dissident, which I you know was was kind of cool. So yeah. I, I crossed that off my list. But um, you know, and I mean, I've I've actually seen Chloe twice now. I don't know five times they played that. So. MS, I'm was it pretty was good it, about that? What was the other one with uh, Pearl Jam Twenty when they played it? Was that the other one you you heard it or they played? Well, I played Wrigley. Oh, played oh, right, it, right, Wrigley. that's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and P, yeah, but PJ Twenty, they did. They just did um, Crown of Thorns. They didn't go into Chloe. I right, think they played right. Chloe for the first time 
um, at the in garden. Canada, I think, like two nights later, right? Something like that. Okay, that that must have been it. Yeah, because um, yeah, so I went to the two Pearl Jam twenties and then the two Toronto's and Hamilton. So that must have been where I seen it. I knew it was right around the Pearl Jam twenty time. Yeah, I think yeah. it was like the September eleventh show. I mean, okay, yeah, yeah, we're like yeah. totally, we are totally like geeking out right now. <laughs> right, yeah. So, I mean, like, everyone else is like, what? <laughs> You're completely alienated ninety five percent of your audience. Right. Yeah. Well, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> um. So okay, a couple other things I want to ask you about this, and I'll let you go. But um, so. This so everyone always asks me. Well, a couple things everyone always asks me. So I ask you this: One is, do you have a favorite show you've been to? Uh, yeah. I mean, and it's it's pretty typical. But I mean, I, I mean, I you know, I called MSG like 2003, and that was just I, I you could tell even before that that was being rec- after it turned into a DVD before it right. turned into a DVD that that was like something to behold. Um, and there was just like so much energy that night, and that was just like. I think that was, you know when they started like you know busting out there's like a lot of stuff but I mean just like right from the jump I mean I went like you know Love Boat Captain Last Exit and then it was just like you know nobody sat down and I mean they just like absolutely just played with the lights on and that was like pretty amazing. Yeah, that was a, that was a great night for sure. That was a great week for me. I so yeah, I remember getting that waiting in line at a hotel like a couple of days before to get our fan club tickets, and just, I just remember thinking, "Wow, it's gonna be great." I always kind of probably for me, it's kind of just a lucky thing is I got to go to the Ben Arroyo show, um, uh-huh. and that's my only time to see him in Seattle, and that was such a special night with such a different way to see them with basically sitting down in this really classy right. theater all night, and the first Fatal and the first Man of the Hour, and the only time I seen around the bend and. The black, which was probably the best black ever, and I remember a couple of weeks later, Mike had said something about how uh, the whole crowd had, had, was singing along to black, and uh, right. and he had kind of just gotten this energy from that. But um, I th- that's probably for me. But then everyone always the other thing everyone always asks me is like, well, if you ever got to talk to any of them, and I did talk to Mike for about a half an hour outside of Detroit one night, which was really cool. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's this single video theory that, that basically a VHS at the time, and I know it is on DVD now too. There's this part at the very end where the guy who's doing the interviews asks Ed, he says, so Pearl Jam means a lot to a lot of people. What does it mean to you? And it kind of cuts out, and he doesn't answer the question. They just kind of leave it hanging. So I will ask you, Pearl Jam means a lot to a lot of people. What does it mean to you? Um. Well, like, like I said, I, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to joy. I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I think that there's just a, you know, a part of, I, I was always envious, like secretly envious of kind of fish fans growing up. And I never really, you know, got too into the music. I mean, I don't mind them, don't hate them. I've seen them a couple of times. But I, I always liked the kind of attachment that their fans had. And I think just the fact that, I mean, I, it didn't, it dawned on me, I guess, maybe around like five or six years ago that I actually have that attachment with Pearl Jam now. Um, so that I feel fortunate about where I can't actually just like feel like I am going you know, it's part of something that, I mean, I think I'll look back like you know, 30 years from now and just like look about it fondly and just like actually just like, you know, get to say that I saw them just like as many times as I did. Great answer. So you can find AJ Delirio on Twitter. He's just at his name very easily to find there. And we're looking forward to seeing all the things that you're going to do with, uh, with spin media. Um, yeah, and, me uh, too. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks a lot for doing this I had a lot of fun as you said kind of geeking out about Pearl Jam and, and chatting about that it's kind of like exactly what I was hoping to do 
Uh, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Enjoy whatever shows you go to. I got Hartford on Friday, and then I'm going for the uh, Dallas OK City weekend. Oh, uh, nice, in, nice. In, in All right. November. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, actually, yeah. Email me after this and tell me about Hartford. And, uh, Will do. That one. So, all right. All right. Thank you so much for doing this. All right. Later, Steve. All right, I want to thank AJ Delirio from Spin Media and, of course, Trey Wingo from ESPN for being on the podcast today. Next week, we will preview the national title defense of the Yale Bulldogs with Anthony Day and Kenny Agostino from those Yale Bulldogs and someone else, and hopefully more fun with our new segment, The Greatest of All Time. Make sure you email us your nominees at thesportscasters at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Okay. One more thing today from me. Today at 12 o'clock Eastern Time, Apple had one of their now famous keynote addresses, uh, something that maybe has lost a little bit of luster in the post-Steve Jobs Apple. I think maybe Steve Jobs and his kind of polarizing nature was what made those keynotes maybe what they became. Maybe they're not quite the same anymore, but I think that this might be the best product that they've dropped in a keynote post Steve Jobs. The new iPad was announced today. It's called the iPad Air with the tagline of the power of lightness. And I couldn't be more excited about what they introduced today, which is basically a really, really small and thin iPad that still has a 9.7 inch screen. So you still have the huge screen, but they've basically uh, decreased the bezel, right? That's the word, right? The bezel? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they've decreased that hugely, so there's a lot less wasted area around the screen. It's thinner. It's lighter. It only weighs one pound. Uh, the current iPad weighs, I think, 1.4 pounds. They mentioned how they did it? Shrink the battery or something? They talked a lot about how they've literally been designing this one since the first one came out. Okay. So this has been in production for as long as any iPad has. Uh, the i the battery is smaller, but still has ten hours of battery life, which what is what they bill as all day battery life. Sure. Uh, mine never really is dead by the end of the day, but it's close, and it takes a long time to charge. It'll be interesting to see how quickly the new iPad charges, which I assume will be charged on Lightning as opposed to the current iPad, which isn't. Uh, also. Uh, there's an A7 Apple processor in this, which was debuted in the new iPhone, and supposedly it does 64-bit graphics uh, faster and quicker without using more battery life, which I guess is the genius of the new processor. It's a very exciting product. I can't wait to get it. Uh, it starts at 499 for the 16 gig, which certainly is pricey, but it's nice to have a third-generation one, which still goes for about $400. That's the one thing I always say. Apple products leads the world in is they retain their value better than anything I've ever seen in the technology field. Cause usually you get something in technology and when the new one comes out, nobody cares about the old one anymore. Like what will the PS three value be when PS four comes out? I don't know. It retails probably at 200. So probably, and I paid 600 for my PS three, right? Probably a hundred bucks. So, but uh, yeah, iPad air. I'm pumped about it. 
Yeah, the, the life of the PS3 is like 10 years, so that's... The one. <laughs> very very true. I've had <laughs> it for a, slight, a long time. That's right? a slight difference. Yeah. So one thing we missed earlier that I just wanted to mention before I go into my one last thing is Reggie Wayne's done for the year, and that's, uh, that's a bummer. A bummer. Yeah. I mean, he had a nice Iron Man streak going. The Colts look better than I give him credit for, so it's a bummer they're going to lose their... I had a fantasy team that lost Doug Martin, Reggie Wayne, and Randall Cobb in two weeks of football, so that's pretty Ooh. cool. Yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. All right, one last thing for me this week. I I would love to do a brave style rant like you, but I, I don't think it would be genuine. And part of it is because I don't know that I feel that strongly one way or the other. The Sabers this year are terrible. Yikes. They are currently one eight and one, I believe. They have three points in ten games. However, that shakes out. Uh, and the hatred for the team is crazy. What I don't understand is the general manager said this is coming. Uh, he said there's going to be suffering. We're playing super young players. Seven rookies. Seven rookies. A, like three or four at a time that are like 18 years old. Uh, I can't hate the kids for being over their head because they're kids. Uh, I can't hate Darcy too much because he said this was coming, and it's about time. Like They should bottom out. They shouldn't middle. Uh, how much can you blame the coach for not being able to coach the youngest team? The kids look totally over their heads. They look totally lost, and hopefully this season doesn't ruin them. On the other hand, I want to be pissed that it came to this a little bit because how can Darcy Regeer and check for three years now? Right? How can Darcy Regeer? How can the coach survive this season? They're embarrassing out there. I don't know how they survived this month. Yeah, I don't. Be honest. And we talked to Bucky Gleason last week, and you asked him the question: What's the perfect scenario for Thomas Vanek? And Ryan Miller, both guys who, again, I talked earlier about rich guys that get kind of picked on in blue collar towns. Both of those players have been great savers and both of them have kind of become unpopular Miller more so than Vanek. I feel bad for both of those guys this year. They're losing a year of their prime career. Miller's been very good too. Right. He's been been really good. Vesna quality. Good. Right. So far he will never win win. because he doesn't have any wins, but his save percentage has been great. And, uh, I feel bad for those guys. And for that reason, I think Darcy Regeer needs to go. These guys shouldn't be on this team. If you want the young kids to suffer and take their lumps, that's one thing. But you got two assets there that are just wasting away. And now the plus side is they're both playing pretty well. Uh, Vanek's going to have his 30-plus, and Miller's looking really good, like he probably should be the Olympic goalie. And your counterpoint to, point to Bucky's argument was, Darcy Regeer might be one of the best sellers. He is very good at going. that. Yep. That said, and I've been a Darcy apologist, if he's here next year, there's something wrong. Uh, I don't mind if you allow him to sell off Vanek and get a boatload for him like you did for Pominville or get someone to way overpay for Miller like they did for Gostad, but he cannot be here this year. Uh, this year is hard to watch. I jokingly said on Facebook today, when does the hockey season start? Because I'm, I'm not watching. When I do watch them, I want them to win, and they don't. When I don't watch them and they lose, I get happy because they're going to get a better draft pick for it. So it's just a brutal spot to be in as a fan. I don't blame the fans for not going. I don't blame the fans for leaving early. doesn't cost any just less this year. The hate, right. <laughs> the hatred to me comes off as a little bit weird. Yeah.